Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, it's Vikram from Quantlayer and thanks for listening to our 15th podcast. On this episode, Faison and I explored the Elastic IPO by doing a deep dive into its SEC prospectus. We look at their business model and risks and how open source software has been a giant revenue driver for them. We then get into an interesting discussion around tech investing and how it's related to crypto. We look at some alerts that came through our platform, a cautionary tale of a trader who lost his life savings by investing at the peak and trying to recover his losses with Bitcoin Cash and Ripple, and how to avoid doing that by looking at trading psychology. We also look at a flash crash in crypto and compare it with flash crashes in public markets. If you enjoy our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It would help us out a lot. Thanks and enjoy this one. Hey everyone, you got Vikram here from Quantlayer. I uh, also joined by Faison, known as the Wizard. Hey, Faison, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? Pretty good. Not too bad. So, might as well get right to it. So, the first topic we wanted to talk about today was the filing recently, the IPO filing recently by the company Elastic, who run the Elastic Search product line. So, this isn't crypto specific. But uh, I think it's pretty related, so which we'll come back to in a little bit. Yeah, I think it's relevant to tech, and then definitely we, we, as you alluded to, there'll be some crypto tie-ins. Yep. So we'll put the link to their prospectus in the show notes. So this is what they're what they call uh, IPO prospectus is called an S one, and this is the first one they filed. So they'll file this, and then the SEC has a chance to look it over, and then have comments and then they can respond with comments and so forth. They'll go, it can go on for a little while, but they filed their S1 and probably they'll end up going public in a few months. So when you're going through an S1, you know, again, there's uh, the SEC is a treasure trove of great info. And if you're interested in any tech companies, interested in investing in tech companies, you know, it's definitely the place to check out. You want to check out uh, companies, 10 Ks, their S ones, their 10 Qs. There's all kinds of filings you can look out to, uh, to familiarize yourself with the space. But in the case of S1s, there's usually a nice little graphic of the company and what they sell uh, right up front. And with networking or hardware companies, you might see like things like routers or cables. With software companies, it's a little harder because it's not like a, uh, there's, there's nothing really to visualize. So their S1, they just describe themselves in a box. And I'll just read it here. So they say, their speed, scale, relevance. Elastic is a search company. We focus on value to users by producing fast results that operate at scale and are relevant. This is our DNA. We believe search is an experience. It's what defines us, binds us, and make us makes us unique. And I, I don't I didn't mean to like giggle at that, but it just reminds me of like Obi-Wan Kenobi's description of the force to Luke Skywalker. Um <laughs> He said something like, you know, the force is what gives a Jedi his power. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. That's um, hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so this early part of this prospectus has a lot of great 
information you can review to get a basic idea of what the company does, what their financials look like, what risks to their business are, things like that. So it's called the prospectus summary, and it's a shorter part up front in a prospectus. So in the elastic one, it's about 18 pages. And if you want to really get into the nitty gritty, you can read further because it's, a you know, say 100 pages. There's plenty of more stuff to read about. So, but we're going to stick to the prospectus summary here. And so within that, they have a, you know, after the little graphic describing themselves, alluding to Star Wars, um, they have a description of themselves. So I think it highlights, you know, what search is and why it's important. So I'll just read it here. And it also highlights like all the customers they have. So this is the part that kind of uh, surprised me. So uh, this is from their prospectus. When you hail a ride home from work with Uber, Elastic helps power the systems that locate nearby drivers and riders. When you shop online at Walgreens, Elastic helps power finding the right products to add to your cart. When you look for a partner on Tinder, Elastic helps power the algorithms that guide guide you to a match. When you search across Adobe's millions of assets, Elastic helps power finding the right photo, font, or color palette to complete your project. As Sprint operates this nationwide network of mobile subscribers, Elastic helps power the logging of billions of events per day and manage website performance issues and network outages. And it goes on and on. It mentions SoftBank, Indiana University, and so forth. And then the, the final line, that little section is, all of this is search. So this is me again. So they're basically walking through a lot of their major customers and what their use cases around search are. So like I said, I was pretty surprised. I didn't realize that you know they worked with Uber and Walgreens and, and Tinder. And in particular, Uber and Tinder are interesting, at least to me, more so than Walgreens, because of the type of solution that Elastic brings to them. So if you think about UX and search, consumer applications like Uber and Tinder have pretty serious requirements. So they're used regularly. Uh, they have geolocation requirements, complex match- matching algorithms in place, and so on. So yeah, Faison, what are you know some of the types of things that Uber and Tinder would care about that Elastic would offer them? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question because I think when you think of search, you just think traditionally like I type in you know words into a box and I get things that that match, and the most simple version of that is like if I search for the word car, give me things that have the word car in it. And then it sort of gets more complicated from there, where give me words that have those letters in it or similar letters. And then you can start thinking about like the, you know, the actual meaning of what I'm searching. But what's interesting about the two examples that you gave specifically is that it's not, it's not language. The Uber example, you're essentially doing some sort of geofencing where you know where everything is, you're updating it in approximately real time, and then you're able to search based on, uh, you know, coordinates. And then the Tinder thing is, again, there's an element of uh, probably geofencing, but also an element of a recommendation engine that's being added to, to this search. So both of those require more than just, you know, text. And I think that's a lot of what has made Elasticsearch so useful is it's it's gone beyond just like text or even just like geolocation. Yeah, and that's that's interesting because it's the user doesn't know that they're involved in the search. Like their use case is not necessarily search. It's you know help me get a car or help me find a date. Yeah. So it is search, I guess, in the broad scheme of uh, conceptually what they're looking for something, but. 
it's not anything like, you know, putting words into a box. Yeah. And so uh, it's interesting because, yeah, like when you think of search, the words into a box, that arguably actually doesn't cover the majority of the use cases that they say they support. It's really much broader. If you go to their site itself, you know, they say logging metrics, uh, site search, security analysis, app search, analytics, like there's, you know, a few more items on that list. And when you dive into that, what you realize is there's a few pieces to that. The first is indexing the data correctly. Like, so you can't just, you know, store everything as text. Like they're able to store locations as locations in a way that they can be queried and compared quickly. They're able to store like other data types so that they can, again, do aggregations on different sort of uh, metrics. They provide uh, logging as a service as well. So you can, again, do aggregation on your logs very quickly. So the way they store this stuff, and then of, of course there's the search pieces okay, that we've grabbed this data, we've indexed it the correct way with the correct types, and now we can actually run the aggregations on it. And you know that's where the the real value from the product comes in. But it's all three layers that are that are pretty useful. And what's I think very powerful with Elasticsearch is like you can start small and scale up. So, you know, if you want to build just a text search, like let's say you have a very simple app, we'll go, you know, Rails and Postgres. And you just want to do some text search on some fields, you can do that within Postgres. Uh, if you want to add some like GIS stuff for locations, you can add the extension and you can do that. But then as it starts getting more complicated, you're going to start thinking about uh, moving to another product. So now either due to the complexity of the type of search you're doing or the like a scale, you just have too much stuff. You don't want to hammer your database. And what's great about Elastic is that they've been able to essentially solve both of those problems. You can do relatively complicated stuff and you can also scale up while having started with a relatively simple implementation. Yep. And so they get into that broader definition in their prospectus as well, which I'll, I'll read here. So this this is from them. Today, what we search has grown to include a rapidly increasing amount of structured and unstructured data from a multitude of sources such as databases, websites, applications, and mobile and connected devices. While search experiences often begin with search boxes, they are not confined to them. Um, This is what we were talking about before. Dragging your Mm -hmm. finger across a map on a smartphone screen is search. Zooming into a specific time frame in a histogram is search. Mining log files for error is search. Forecasting storage capacity two weeks into the future is search. Using natural language processing to analyze user sentiment is search. So, you know, they're basically every, everything is search. So what they're saying here is they're they're kind of expanding their definition of search to include things other than searching for text and websites. So I guess, Faison, do you think this is fair? Like search and indexing obviously go hand in hand. But what they're saying, or you think what they're saying here is fair, or are they kind of just expanding their core market definition to justify like a higher valuation because they're going public? In general, I think it's fair. If you look, you know, if you go through their website and a lot of what they're saying, a lot of what they are selling is use cases and not like the underlying technology. But I think that's smart. But I, I think it's entirely, entirely reasonable because essentially you're using Elasticsearch for a lot of what is a bit too complicated, not too complicated, like it's not ideal to do within your relational database, but that if you, again, sit and like build a NoSQL store and build your own aggregation layer 
and analysis and all on top of it is going to be time consuming, probably slower and less reliable. It's, it goes back to the, you know, don't build what you can buy. Yep. So they've probably broadened the definition a little bit, but I think it's reasonable. Yep. So then they go into this other part of the prospectus summary, uh, which is another, this is a super interesting topic and it'll tie into the crypto stuff. It's about the their open source business model. So here they go. Our origins are rooted in open source, which facilitates rapid adoption of our software and enables efficient distribution of our technology. Developers can download our software directly from our website for use in development and production environments. Since January 1st, 2013, our products have been downloaded 350 million times. These downloads include both free and paid products. Open source also fosters our vibrant community of developers who help improve our products and build on top of them. And then they provide some stats to that last point about the vibrant community. As of July 31st, 2018, our community included over 100,000 meetup members across 194 meetup groups in 46 countries. So if you asked me five years ago when I was trading full-time whether number of meetup members was a useful metric for investing in a software company, I would probably would have said, no, that's stupid and you're fired. It would have seemed like a pretty superfluous metric to me, much like like the whole eyeballs thing during the dot-com heyday. You know, it, it's not a sales margin, pricing, earnings metric. So it's hard to use to model out a company's performance with something like meetup group members. But my view has changed now. So I've done a 180 uh, after have been developing full time is definitely an important metric to consider when you're investing in an open source company. And it's, again, not going to be like the stock price is not going to be tied to the number of meetup members. But if you have a solid community and you know meetups are one metric to look at look at that around then it probably is a, a good indicator so why is it so so they allude to that in in the following section our business model is based on a combination of open source and proprietary software many features of our software can be used free of charge some are only available through paid subscriptions which include access to specific proprietary features and also include support and then they continue Our sales and marketing efforts start with developers who have already adopted our software and then evolve to departmental decision makers and senior executives who have broad purchasing power within their organizations. So Faison, what are your thoughts here? So how do you think like things like meetup members, growing meetup groups around the world and things like that can affect a open source project? Yeah, I think they're absolutely uh, like on the nose with that. I think there's a subset of the industry particularly in like the space like Rails and its offshoots like Node, Elixir, whatnot, where that's how a lot of developers choose the tech that they want to work in, find jobs, build their professional circles, experiment with new technology. Like it's really very uh, meetup and community driven. So it doesn't have to be physical meetups. You know, there's a lot of activity on Slack, Discord, IRC channels. But for open source, like for open source technologies, the community is absolutely essential because for anything to become relatively big, you need that involvement to grow the uh, the tech itself. And also like building the community is, is the market that you're eventually going to go sell into. You know, speaking for me personally, I can think of multiple examples where technology that maybe I didn't end up using professionally, but I 
like went and experimented with was the result of going to a meetup and seeing a talk on a given use case of a specific piece of tech. Or I can think of two instances where there was actually a developer evangelist from the company that produces the technology there giving a demonstration that was compelling enough to get me to try their tech. Yeah, the whole developer evangelist thing, I didn't buy at first, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it was a ridiculous thing and a ridiculous term. And then you go see it and it's it's not a like fluff. It's not at all. Role. It's, it's, it's usually a very, very competent technical person that understands the, their technology and its use cases like inside and out and can demonstrate it effectively. That's been my experience. Yeah. And they can answer questions like, oh, okay, this seems interesting. I want to include it in my in my workflow that so it does X, Y, and Z, and then they can just tell you. Yeah. Uh, but I guess that's their whole role. Like they're trying to facilitate the developer community. So it makes a ton of sense. So they, they even point to this phenomena in their prospectus, uh, which is from, they have a section on growth strategies and th- it's actually the first on the list. It's uh, increase product adoption by improving ease of use and growing our open source community. So I guess let's drill down into this a little bit. So Faison, when you see like an open source project and it becomes easier to use, like how might that translate into more revenue? Yeah. Okay. So first there's something like, you know, Oracle, IBM, whatever, selling their enterprise licenses directly to generally larger companies. So we'll take, you know, those sorts of products out of the equation. Then we look at Something that let's say like we're, you know, we have a product we're working on. We're less likely to go to Oracle and pay $50,000 for a database license. We're going to go look at what are open source solutions out there. So the sorts of tools and technologies that these smaller dev teams, startups, and now a lot of bigger companies too are using are all really, you're seeing it's a lot of open source that's then backed by a for-profit company. And I would say that like if I see something's open source, it has a lot of usage. It's the like the you know de facto choice for that specific technical problem or one of the options. That's great. But if I'm going to make it a part of my core infrastructure, like, oh, this is gonna be my what I use for my database or you know, for my core search or uh, deployment, it actually helps a lot to have a like for-profit company behind it because you know, there's a certain amount of momentum if there's an, you know, if like Elastic, for example, is getting paid enough by a bunch of big companies to run their product, you know, there's a good amount of momentum behind the open source project as well. Yep. And so, and it goes the other way as well, where as they grow the community, some subset of that community is basically their like total addressable market. You know, I can create a open source search tool, and if no one's using it, there's no one to sell uh, cloud services or regular services to for that tool. But if you get a million people using it, and you know, some subset of those go on to become very successful startups, like the examples you gave of your Uber or your Tinder, now you you've just grown the market that you can sell a product into. Yep, that's a pretty important point because, like, like you said, if you end up with a future unicorn as a customer and you're embedded into their architecture, that's a pretty big win. Yeah. You know, you've got a huge enterprise sale locked in that you just grew with when they were small. So uh, is the official definition of unicorn, I mean, you have a billion 
uh, you have a billion dollar valuation. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Really so. Okay. But it, just cause you have a unicorn as a customer, it doesn't make you like a, like a baby unicorn. No, okay. you're, you're just, a, <laughs> I don't know if there's a term for a baby unicorn. I know there's Decacorn, which is a $10 billion company. Apparently Oh wow, unicorn's not cool enough anymore. <laughs> so another interesting thing in their prospectus is this thing that they have called net expansion rate. So like across the board, across the board of public companies, especially in tech, they all try to find these like unique metrics that are associated with, uh, with, with them. So like, you know, margin isn't necessarily like a unique metric, but some companies will point and say like, Oh, our gross margin is higher than all our competitors. And, uh, you know, just tweaking your revenue a little bit means a ton of profitability and things like that. So, uh, I I think this is going to be a pretty important part of the elastic story, this thing called net expansion rate. So, uh, they explain it here. We believe that a useful indicator of our customers' tendency to expand their usage of our products is our net expansion rate, which measures expansion in existing customers' annual subscriptions over a 12-month period. Our net expansion rate was 142% as of July 31st, 2018, and over 130% at the end of each of our last seven fiscal quarters. So they define it in more in depth in their MDNA. That's the management's discussion and analysis of financial condition and result of operations. If you want to do a deep dive in, in a company that's just filed to go public, that's the section you want to look at. It'll just lay out like how the company's business is, its risks, all the levers that they have to make and lose money. So anyone that's interested in investing in, a, in an IPO should read that part of their prospectus. It's really, it's highly, highly educational. So what do they say about this net expansion rate in their MDNA? The net expansion rate includes the dollar weighted value of our subscriptions that expand, renew, contract, or attrit. For instance, if each customer had a one-year subscription and it renewed its subscription for the exact same amount, then the net expansion rate would be 100%. So what is this? Uh, net expansion rate, it's basically the amount a customer has increased their spend at Elastic. It's an indicator that the Elastic is gaining share at a particular customer. And why is that important? So the more and more entrenched they can be at a current customer, the more beneficial it is for them long-term. So when we have use cases like big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence that are going to become a larger part of the equation for software companies, that will benefit them over time uh, if they're already embedded in like a lighter use case of their technology. Yeah. So they're valuing their TAM, the total addressable market, as $45 billion. And they, you know, the last fiscal year ending, I think, it was, yeah, this last fiscal year, uh, they've done $160 million. Hmm. So a natural play there is just to be able to sell more product into their current customer base for those verticals that they just aren't part of yet. Yeah, and I think there's an extra layer layer there. So there's the, you know, total you said total addressable market 45 billion big data ML AI. Mm-hmm. And then the 160 million that they've done. But I think, you know, going back to the community building, there's the okay, we have 45 billion dollars of potential spend, but the first piece is just convincing people that Elasticsearch is the solution over some other similar competitors, but you're, you still have not monetized that group. So the first is essentially turning them into users and then turning them into customers. 
so with with these like open source uh, backed companies, there's it's an interesting dynamic because you you can get people using you what you've put out and still not monetize them at all. Yeah, that's why when someone is successful like like this, uh, you know, doubling revenue almost year on year and having a mostly open source software base, that's pretty it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So this net expansion rate, um, I think it's going to be a metric that analysts will care about on all the conference calls once they're public. Analysts always care about like, uh, as I mentioned before, every company every company has like a handful of metrics that really drive their growth. Um, yeah. You know, margins, pricing, unit sales for like retail companies. For these guys, I think uh, net expansion rate will be up there, along with revenue, of course. So they they highlight this as a risk factor in their prospectus as well. So this is what they say. The markets and a risk factor is basically a list of all the things that you and your lawyers are worried about with respect to your business. So it'll be in a 10K, it'll be in an S1 prospectus. It's basically for the investors. It's, it's a, you know, cover your ass for the company so, that, so the investors know, you know, what are all the possible things that could go wrong at the company. So this is, this is the risk factor that they, they have for this particular thing. The markets for some of our products are new, unproven, and evolving, and our future success depends on the growth and expansion of these markets and our ability to adapt and respond effectively to evolving markets. So in general, as far as their risk factors go, a lot of them are pretty boilerplate. Like we may not be able to compete successfully against current and future competitors or if we are unable to increase sales of our subscriptions to new customers, sell additional subscriptions to our existing customers, or expand the value of our existing customer subscriptions, our future revenue and result of operations will be harmed. I mean, no <laughs> shit. If you don't sell more product, your business is going to do poorly. To be honest, I was pretty disappointed in the risk factors. A lot of companies have more specific ones, but the, most of the ones I listed were pretty boilerplate, apart from that one we just talked about. There's a, there's also one more that's pretty relevant to like the whole open source thing. And I'll read it here. Because of the rights accorded to third parties under open source software licenses, there are limited technological barriers to entry into the markets in which we compete. And it may be relatively easy for competitors, some of whom have greater resources than we have to enter our markets and compete with us. So what, what do you think, Faison? This, I mean, I think this is the main risk factor for them because we talked about that you know phase one is getting people to use your product and the second is monetizing them and this if if what you're providing is like you know whether you want to call it like infrastructure as a service platform as a service uh what have you elastic specifically is competing against the likes of aws now you know, you can download the Elasticsearch source and run your own node uh, in production. You probably want to be running some sort of cluster of at least two or three nodes, which then there's a lot of overhead to doing that. So then you start looking at using some sort of a cloud hosting service and you can go to Elastic. But because the product itself is open source, there's nothing stopping AWS from providing the same thing. And the risk there is that AWS provides everything. AWS has a lot of customers that do all of their other cloud services from AWS. It's a lot easier for them to just add one more item to the bill yep. and go set up a separate thing with Elastic outside of whatever virtual private cloud they've set up or whatnot. So this one is interesting because 
I'm curious to see how they'll uh, compete. Now, that being said, we have seen a few tactics that these companies will use. Um, they may open source the main product, but they may, like, especially for lar- larger cloud deployments, there may be a modified version that they run that's more performant, better at handling very large clusters, things like that, that's not publicly available. So for the customers that are most profitable, the ones that are going to be running these large clusters, they can offer something a little bit better than they can get from someone else that you know isn't the one essentially that has the most uh, contributors to the open source. That's still a risk because if AWS sees a lot of opportunity, again, the project is open source, they can add maintainers to the project. And we saw this happen with uh, Node and Joyent. So, you know, Node is a basically JavaScript on the server. Uh, it was this company, Joyent, that provided, uh, you know, services and a lot of the core team for Node. And essentially, a lot of the open source developers didn't like the direction Joyent was taking it. They forked Node, and then there was a big kerfuffle, and then, you know, it ended up being um, merged back together, and then there's like a foundation that runs it. So my understanding is that it's less, un- because it's open source, and enough of the people were not associated with Joint, they have less control of it than they did initially. So there is that risk, but in general, the company that did create the open source technology can run a modified version because they're going to have a better understanding of it. But with respect to like continued development by uh, Elastic, that's going to be tougher for AWS to maintain, no? Yeah. So, so there's the there's the piece of it where like you know the the bit that's open source, everyone is going to keep getting access to it. So if Elastic throws a bunch of money at open source maintainers, whether they're like internal staff or uh, you know full time external people, everyone's going to get whatever gets pushed into master. But they can maintain internal versions that are much more performant for like very large deployments, and we've seen that happen. I, th- I would need to double check, but I'm pretty sure Redis Labs does the same thing. So like the original creator of Redis works there, uh, and the version they use for like their cloud support is slightly optimized for that sort of thing. The other thing that they can do is more products. So you know, I can spin up my own thing. There's a lot of reasons why I shouldn't. I can go into AWS, spin up an Elasticsearch cluster. They'll handle a lot of the like uh, DevOps portion of it. But then you start looking at you know the use cases that we had mentioned earlier, like logging or analytics. And you see if you you know go to Elasticsearch, Elasticsearch is only one of a number of products they offer, right. where they have Logstash, they have Kibana, they have ECE that help solve some of those problems. Uh, you know you can build dashboards so. You know, Elasticsearch provides the indexing and the underlying querying language, but you can very quickly have a UI that gives you dashboards into the metrics that you might want to that you might care about. You can very easily spin up uh, logging. Right. So then that makes it much more compelling to use their suite of services because they're they're solving more of like your platform or application level concerns. Yeah, I think that's what they were saying to that point in there. In their S1, they say, you know, our business model is based on some open source, some proprietary, and then some features are free of charge, and then some can only be through paid subscriptions. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, we have seen that too with open source where you only get some features in the... in the, uh, And that seems to have worked pretty well. I think in the Ruby world, Sidekick, which was a tool we used to use, 
Um, there's a free version that is like ubiquitous. And then for some projects where we needed some more advanced features, it was, you know, I think in the th thousands of dollars a year to have the, the enterprise version that actually was the code was slightly different. So that can work as well. Yeah. So like the open source, the free open source features are like the gateway drug. And yeah. then, you know, all the other stuff that adds so much more on top of it or the rest. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we talked really high level about like what they're up to and stuff. And then also it's worth looking at their numbers because they're pretty phenomenal. So in 2017, these are all fiscal years. So 2017, they did 88 million and 15 million in license, 65 in subscription and the remainder in, in services. Same number in 2018 were 160 million in total revenue, 26 million in license, 124 million in subscription and the remainder in services. So one interesting thing about services is they don't make a lot of money. Last year, they made 2 million on 8 million. This year, they lost 2 million on 10.5 million in revenue. So it's definitely not going to be a big driver of earnings growth by itself. Like it'll help probably help sell product. That's the whole point. Yeah, that's probably another differentiator going back to like, why would I choose Elastic over AWS? There may be some bias towards, you know, if I'm getting, if I'm buying a service contract, I may be more trusting of the company that essentially created the technology over like a third party provider. Right. So what the total revenue growth, 81, 82%. So they're still in the red. Operating expenses grew from 116 million to 167 million. So that's about 44% growth. So they're still top lines growing faster than their burning capital, which is good. Yeah. And I think that's pretty standard for other companies that have been in this position, like uh, Mongo and whatnot, if I'm yep. not mistaken. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're probably going public to help with that burn. Uh, but if they're going to double year on year, you know, next year they grows. I don't know. I, I don't know what like the model numbers look like, but I wouldn't be surprised if they say like next year's estimate is going to be uh, like fifty percent or seventy percent revenue growth. Actually, I don't know. Like, I haven't been in the sell side in a really long time, but I remember like back when I was banking and went through a couple roadshows. There was a point where bankers were no longer allowed to give. Uh, forward estimates for the companies that they were taking on the roadshow. Either the company couldn't give forward estimates or the bankers couldn't like in their, in their roadshow presentation. Like you can't say specifically my estimate for the company is going to be up 50% because it's not like public knowledge. It's only knowledge for like the people who are involved in the roadshow. Hmm. So it's, I don't know if it's insider info, but it's not fair to the rest of the market participants. So people would always dance around it. Like, I remember investors would just ask all kinds of questions to kind of get like an answer. Oh, is it going to grow as much as it did last year? Um, if it doesn't <laughs> grow, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah. If, it do, if it doesn't grow as much as it did last year, you know, how much could it grow by? It would just go, it would be a long dance, like 30 minute long dance of a 45 minute long meeting uh, to figure warmer, out what next year's colder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but everyone's part of the game. Everyone knows what, what, what game is being played. So, yeah, w with all those numbers out of the way, you know, we should probably talk about, you know, we've used Elasticsearch on a number of projects. Um, yeah, it's pretty much part of our, like, go-to stack at this point, I would say. Uh, you know, obviously, we're big fans of Elixir for our 
backend code. Unless there's a specific reason to use something else, that's what we like to start with because it it gives it just gives you a lot of stuff out of the box. It lets you work fast and is fast and just gives you a lot. Postgres is our go-to database. And then for front end, it's you know Ember or React. And then usually uh, Elasticsearch is in the mix as well. How I like to structure stuff is I'm a big believer in like keeping your data like, like pure. So I don't like to denormalize stuff in my database to speed up queries. I don't, if, if avoidable, I really like to keep my database as like a source of truth that's very easy to maintain and keep correct. And then any like querying, like optimized queries that need to happen or stuff like that, then I'll use Elasticsearch as a place to store denormalized data, index data in a way that can be queried quickly, do complex querying. So it's almost like the database is the source of truth. And then Elasticsearch is there to facilitate any uh, querying or denormalization of data. And that's worked pretty well. And it's pretty quick to get up and running once you've done it a few times. And at one point, do you say, you know, Postgres, you know, you've been great so far, but we should we should really move this thing over to Elasticsearch. Like, what are some scenarios where that might happen? So it's pretty straightforward. If I see that, okay, the way this app is structured, this table is going to get very big and we're querying it a lot. That's usually one sign. If the query itself, like if there's queries that require a lot of like joins or essentially if I'm starting to look at like, oh, this would be way faster if I denormalize the data rather than denormalizing the data at this point. Like, again, I really like to keep the database in like a normalized state with lots of validations and just like pretty strict rules about what can get into the database and how how it's uh, stored. So the moment I'm thinking about denormalization or I see myself making some very complex queries uh, to sort of compose multiple tables into one, that's usually a sign that, hey, maybe it's time to bring in Elasticsearch or if, if a table is just getting very large. Because again, Elasticsearch, you can scale horizontally, Postgres, not so much uh, without sharding and a bunch of stuff that usually you don't want to get into. Right. And, you know, we had talked about... Uh, Hey, Elasticsearch is actually really useful for uh, crypto, and uh, we looked at all the use cases like that they talk about security uh, metrics, analytics, stuff like that. Essentially, I, th- I think for us, it's going to be a great tool for doing analysis of uh, on-chain data. Yep. Just what it gives you is going to be a great way to store and analyze and visualize on-chain data and events. And then the other thing that I think is just interesting about this whole thing is, you know, you can read like white papers and you see a lot of market activity, but I think reading like tech S1s and seeing how traditional tech companies have performed does give you some insight into how you should be thinking about a lot of like ICO markets and things like that. If you're not as familiar with like traditional markets. Yeah. I mean, it's basically, it's, you know, IPO company, it's funny to call it mature. Like when you call a company mature, we're thinking like Microsoft, you know, GE and stuff, but they're mature as far as, you know, they've been around for like 2012, I think. So about six years. So it's still pretty young. Yeah. But, and they're doing, but they're doing a hundred million plus in revenue. Yeah. So it's mature in the sense that it's not like a startup of, you know, yeah, if you look person. at revenue and their user base and just the, even the amount of like, you know, just the fact that what goes into making an S1 versus like what, most ICO companies are doing in terms of like 
<laughs> regulatory like disclosure. Yeah, S S one versus white paper. What do you trust? Yeah. So so I think there's just a lot there to to learn. Yeah, I think that brings us to like a related topic around just broadly professional investors and technology companies. And what brought it to mind was, you know, I was looking for like what other people were saying about Elasticsearch. So Seeking Alpha, it's this site. Uh, I, I can't believe how much it's grown. I, it's grown so much. They cover all kinds of things. They cover stocks. They cover cryptos. I think commodities now too. There is a post that an author had written about Elasticsearch, like a first look at the IPO. So I thought, okay, I'll check this guy out. This guy is, you know, it's pretty. It's all in the. Sh- it'll be all in the show notes. But you know, it's pretty well well received person. Has a bunch, you know, seven thousand followers on Seeking Alpha, which is, uh, you know, a pretty good number. So I'll just see what he has to say. So I'll read the first part of his uh, analysis. Elastic mostly works on the back end, powering application interfaces without users ever realizing how their searches are being executed. As such, this is a company that does not compete against Google consumer end, and at least not in the same way that Microsoft's Bing does through, though Google offers similar products on the enterprise side that do compete against Elastic. Unlike Google, Elastic does not earn revenues from ad placements within its search engine. This is not an internet company, but an enterprise software company, one that collects subscription revenues from its customers by licensing the use of its Elastic stack to power applications. Okay, this is me again. Um, I find it to be like a really naive explanation. I of think naive is a search. very nice word to use for this. <laughs> um, to say that it mostly works on the back end doesn't compete with Bing the way Bing competes with Google and all that stuff, and that it doesn't earn revenue from ad placements just is is a woeful understatement and bad representation of what Elasticsearch does. All these things are true, but they but they miss the mark. It's like saying that a marijuana company doesn't compete with Anheuser-Busch the way Miller's Coors does. I mean, you're missing the whole point of how people get high. Yeah, I, I would I would go even further. You know, I would use the example, let's say we mm-hmm. want to use transportation as an analogy. So, you know, Elasticsearch essentially provides infrastructure or like some underlying stuff for the like company that's ultimately the end user company such as like a Tinder. I would say that it's more like comparing like a tier one automotive supplier, like someone that makes the sub assemblies for Ford versus Uber. So, you know, in the, in the comparison, like it doesn't compete against Google. It's really like saying the company that makes car parts doesn't compete with like Uber giving rides. That's right. That's actually true. Like <laughs> the whole revenue model. That's totally true. <laughs> like what you're ultimately providing one is like, like you're essentially a vendor for someone that provides some service to the end user and the other is a different end user service. So it's just both happen to be in, in like both happen to be search in the way that both of these happen to be transportation, but it's, yep. it's a shit analogy. Yeah. In general though, I think there's like, I don't know if it's a growing disconnect, but I, I do think there's like a general disconnect among professional investors and in what tech companies are doing. Do you think that could be the kind of thing that would get, worse over time as tech becomes more and more specialized? I don't, I like, so it's hard for me to know if it's getting worse or better. I mean, you, you know, you've been a tech investor longer than I have been interested in tech. So do you think that 
people's understanding of tech now is better or worse than it was, say, when we were talking about like not web, but stuff in the. Like- so I, I would say our average understanding of tech is better, like on average, you know, if someone says it's like the Uber of blah, yeah. like you can very quickly know what they're talking about. Um, the thing I don't know yet is how specialized. What about the specialized knowledge like Internet company yeah. versus enterprise software company? Okay. That's fine. But then you, you can get even more specialized with like not just search, but the, you know, the stuff we were talking about earlier with like logging and the whole elk stack and all that. So the more the thing I don't know how it's progressing, and that's why I'm just worried about is the more specialized tech gets, like will it just be less and less people who understand it? So like the same the same the same guy has written a ton of other great articles. It's just his understanding of this particular space is is not good. So I just wonder if that is going to be the new norm. Yeah. Uh, because what Elastic does uh, what Elastic does is pretty specific. Yep. Right? Yeah. No, absolutely. I think Elast- it's like it's really hard to understand what they do if you're a non-developer. And honestly, even if you're a developer and you've never used it, a lot of the value is in the nuance. And so my view towards this, and I think I used to feel much more strongly that like, if you're not technical, you're going to have a dangerous misunderstanding of like how to value a tech company. I don't feel as strongly that way anymore on the like more mature end of the spectrum, like when we're talking about public companies. So what I'd, you know, what I'd say is if, if you're non-technical and we're talking about when Elastic had let's say 5 million revenue and you're comparing it to some other companies. If you're non-technical, it's really, really, really going to be hard for you to judge like which one of these is going to be a winner. I think like you have to understand that nuance. I don't know if that's as important at 200 million in revenue because at that point they've proven their thesis in terms of like, we think that this implementation of this technology solves this problem best in a way that like we can capture market share. Like they've proven that so then maybe their valuation really has more to do with things like how good they are at, at selling or doing other things that they need to grow as a technology company. They're not as directly tied to like the nuance of the underlying technology, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Because there's a lot of bigger tech companies that sell shitty products and seem to do pretty well. Yeah. I mean, they are pretty small, like 160 million yeah, that's uh, still is still pretty small, right? Versus like Microsoft, Google, of course, and the rest of the crew. So, you know, maybe they're a little more leveraged towards tech. I'm not sure. Yeah. But I guess my point being like, at when they were very small, you really would just assess like, is this a useful thing? Now the question becomes more around uh, like, can they compete against AWS offering the same similar thing? And that has less to do with their technology than about like how they're actually like going into the a market now. Right. So I guess that was my point. And I yeah think probably tech investors are reasonably qualified to answer those sorts of questions. Yep. So I guess, do you think that's analogous to crypto or like, how do you think about that? Crypto is a whole another animal, I think, just because we've added this whole dynamic of the way, like just the amount of funds and how they're being raised. Like companies are essentially going public at the stage where I talked about like the, even before the stage of the 5 million revenue, like it's not even a a technical person assessing, is this useful or good? Like it's an even stage before that where people are just implementing what's in their white paper. 
So that's a whole different animal because I don't, I can't think of somewhere where we've seen that much funding go to companies that are like essentially operating as a public company would, but before like anything's been proven out. Right. So on, on the alerting side, you know, we had a bunch of interesting alerts come in recently with the first one is a cautionary tale uh, that came through the platform. So it's, it was a CNN article uh, titled Bitcoin Crash. This man lost his savings when cryptocurrencies plunged. And the story is about a UK real estate developer named Sean Russell. And this is, this is how they describe him. So Russell rarely played the stock market had little in, and had little investing experience when he put around $120,000 in Bitcoin in November 2017. He was stunned when that turned into 500000 in just one month. So I remember this period like really clearly. Everything was going up. Yeah. Like every day it would be like 20, 30, 40%. Yeah. Like 2x sometimes. Things would just go up all the time. Yeah, Bitcoin. Was I think anyone too. that's listening to this is probably pretty yeah. tuned into yeah. what happened in November and December. And the, everyone is waiting for like, when is that going to happen again? Like, to be honest, that's you know, yeah. when pe- when is alt season coming back? That's like what they're waiting for. They're waiting for when <laughs> you know all the alts go crazy again, and we'll see. So then that continues. The dream didn't last for Russell, who was working as a property developer in the UK, buying homes and fixing them up. The price of Bitcoin surpassed 20000 in December before collapsing. It now trades at $6,300. Uh, I don't know if that $20,000 number is right, maybe. I don't know. It, you know, There's not a lot of nuance. It's just It was around there, but uh, just so we don't get called out for by people saying, hey, Bitcoin was never over 20000 This is CNN. This is not Qualier. So Russell attempted to mitigate his losses by shifting money from Bitcoin to an offshoot called Bitcoin Cash and other cryptocurrencies, including Ethereum and Ripple. But that didn't work. And Russell says the paper losses on his initial investment have reached 96%. I mean, when you're losing money, the best thing to do is move it to stuff with increased volatility if you're trying to like retreat, right? Right. <laughs> you know, we obviously feel bad for this guy, but like th- there's just all around, there's just bad decision making. So it, one tenet of investing is don't invest more than you can lose. Uh, people say it all the time. It's kind of like this pithy thing you say now, but it's so right. Like don't invest, don't invest your life savings in something that is as volatile as Bitcoin or the crypto market. It's just silly. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And people also make bad decisions when they're losing. So like I've seen this with traders a lot and that's why PMs, portfolio managers typically have stops for their traders. So a lot of like really short term oriented trading shops, this is public markets. I don't, I don't think crypto markets are like this. We'll have like pretty short stops. Like if you're down 5% on the day on your portfolio, they'll cut you off. They'll just liquidate all your positions and say, you know, uh, there's a term. There's like, go to the movies. Basically, the idea is like, when you're down a lot, (laughs) just leave, go away, and then go relax. Go to like, literally, go at two o'clock into the watch a movie, and then forget about your day. Like, take a vacation for a couple days because psychology does matter quite a bit. Yeah. So people make bad decisions when they're losing, and people make really bad decisions when they're losing a lot. Like, so you have your portfolio manager for whatever reason doesn't have like any kind of risk management in place and you're down like 10%, 15%, 20%, like traders will start piling on like, oh, I'm down. I'm just waiting for it to come back. Oh, it's down 20%. That means it's cheaper and I can buy more. Oh, it's down 30%. 
it's even cheaper. I'll buy more and they'll go like all the way down. They'll just do that. I've seen that happen. It's terrible. Yeah. And um, I, you see that I used to play poker and that's like called going on tilt when you're just. Oh, yeah. You've just Yeah. You've lost it basically at that point and you're just doing crazy stuff. Yeah. It just psychology really matters. So, you know, you want to be careful with this stuff. Investments in what are mostly experimental assets should be viewed through the lens of possible failure. Like, what if it goes to zero? That is an entirely possible scenario. So you want to manage for that. So when someone says don't invest more than you lose, that don't invest more than you can lose, they're saying, like, what if this goes to zero? Like, how, how will that affect your life? And it's tough. Like, I do recognize that it's tough. Like, we all have biases when things are going well, uh, particularly in trading, because, like, you can see the number on a second-by-second basis. It's hard to see, like when things are going really well, it's hard to see where they can go wrong. So when people are like, don't be emotional about investing and that's harped on so often, that's what they mean. It's like, if you're feeling really good about your investments, then just like pause, like take a pause and reflect on like what you're doing. So it goes and both things, ways. Yeah, exactly. If things are doing really hard, really like if your portfolio is getting crushed, like that's what they say, go to the movies. It's like you got to get your mind into a different place because the mind that you have right now that's trading is not the right mind. If you have if you're losing sense of mind, like you can't turn that into a winning mindset just immediately. And it's not fluff. It's like it can sound a bit fluffy, but it's really not. Anyway, so that was, you know, all in all, it's just a sad story, a cautionary tale of how how not to trade. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Like 96% is pretty brutal over you know, br- month. Yeah. Like, yeah. That that really doesn't happen. And like, that's analogous to like gambling losses more so than like trading, it feels like. Yeah. Another, another alert we had uh, come through just to touch on. I know, you know, last podcast we talked a bunch about UX, particularly around like passkey, passphrase, password. Uh, and, you know, same chat. I'm just going to quote uh, Hello, who is admin? I forgot my login and password for web wallet account with, with 5 millions of BCN. Help me, please. Exclamation mark. And so, <laughs> you know, just to touch on this, like wallet UX is a very big deal. And we we see it consistently coming through on the Telegram chats. Yep. Another interesting uh, GitHub alert that came through you know some of these there's not necessarily a whole investigation to follow up it's just the titles are very interesting and they allude to stuff that you definitely want to be keeping an eye on this one was attempt at fixing wallet syncing crash so take that for what it's worth (laughs) attempt Uh, yeah it's it's not a fix if i had a bunch of money in a wallet sitting on that uh coin i would that's probably something where I do a lot more follow up into their into their code and what what's crashing, right? And what are the uh, implications? Yeah, a uh, good version of that would be fixes wallet syncing crash. Yeah, this attempt at fixing not- is like what what what's the status and what's the consequences currently? Right. <laughs> yeah, are my two first <laughs> yeah, questions, did you, right? <laughs> did you fix it? <laughs> but, I mean, is that no? When people do this. Uh, and I understand why people do this. Like maybe you can't like test it locally or something. They need to yeah. like put it out and then just uh, try it in the real world. But yeah. And that's actually his follow-up question is, okay, I see that the code is on master, but is this on the test net? Is this on the, where, you know, where is this being tried too? I would also want to know that. Right. 
So it, yeah, it's just the title of a lot of these commits can raise a lot of follow-up questions if you are interested in that specific coin. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another one that uh, came through recently, it was the uh, September 5th uh, flash crash. So basically what happened was the, and the, the causes are, there's a bunch of different uh, theories people have on the actual cause, but I'll just uh, describe what actually happened. So Ethereum went from trading just under 500 Ether per minute to over 10,000. So that's over a 2,000% increase. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. And I think it was uh, Bitfinex, which normally does about 20% volume, uh, went to over 50% of the total volume of ETH. And then that was, you know, preceded by a relatively big sell-off, hence the the crash. And then Bitcoin also, you saw an uptick, but it was not as much and it was after. So that leads people to believe it was more of a reaction to what was happening with uh, ETH. So one of the theories that uh, was floated was uh, Digix, which was this large ICO, was planning to liquidate uh, $20 million worth of uh, ETH. So that would potentially have a big uh, move on prices, but that's not really been confirmed. And if you do a search in our platform of just flash crash, you actually get a number of articles that come up that just have, you can just skim through the summaries of the different analyses and viewpoints that people have on, on what caused this. So it's interesting to read through some of those to see what people are thinking. Vikram, I know, I'm sure you've been, you've observed some flash crashes in uh, traditional markets. Yeah, so they would happen for, Different reasons. Uh, there's a few that I remember. Like, there's this term fat finger. And I guess it has its roots in like, the basic idea is like someone instead of pressing like a thousand, pressed a million. Yeah. They have such a large finger, it added three more zeros to it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if you end up selling like a thousand times what you meant to sell, you're going to crash an asset. Unless, like at the professional level, like if you're trying to sell $10 of something and it's like $10 of Microsoft stock and you end up selling $10,000 of Microsoft, that's not a big deal. But if you're trying to sell uh, a million dollars of Microsoft stock and you try to sell a billion, (laughs) that's a problem. And that happens with like futures contracts for the, for like the NASDAQ and the S&P. So we've heard this term before, fat finger, where like someone ends up selling a lot more than they meant to. And then all the algos are watching and all the algos kind of do like there's thousands of different algorithms that algorithmic traders use. But, you know, some of the common ones are used throughout the market. And if the market starts crashing, there'll be additional selling. It's not panic selling, let's say, but it's like algorithmic selling. Yeah. And if the event is something that was way outside of some reasonable parameters, you can probably get some weird unintended behaviors. Yeah. Where if like no one has ever more than like a $5 million sell order and all of a sudden someone puts in a $5 billion one, you can probably screw some of these algorithms up. Yeah. And with these, with these, some of these flash crashes in the crypto market, there's been a few which have been like, I, you know, Ether went into the pennies, right? And some people, what they do, and it's smart, you should just do it. Like, you know, if there's a few exchanges that are like light on volume, just throw, you can throw some bids out there. Of course, the risk is like, you have to leave assets on the exchange, which you don't want to do for something that might happen. But if you have a pretty small amount, like you could just leave it. And if it gets filled, 
Like imagine just getting, uh, you know, ethers like $200, a little under 200 now. Imagine getting filled at like 50 cents, right? So it would happen with stocks. I do remember it. it. And I think there were a couple times where like people could profit from it. And I think there was another time where the NASDAQ ended up like canceling a lot of those trades. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. The so, one that I remember hearing of was the Knight Capital one, which I don't think it was fat fingered. I think it was a bug in the actual algorithm, right? Yeah, right. Where they, they lost like $400 million in like 30 minutes or something yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's right. It was a few years ago. Yeah. One more uh, alert that I wanted to talk about today was uh, basically a post by this uh, company called uh, Menlo Core. And so their whole thing is on uh, proof of reputation and single sources of truth and content nodes. And basically, what the, to give you a gist of what they're doing is if I'm a publisher... I can put some information on a blockchain and then independent parties can run a content node that is uh, ver- like basically making some sort of claim about what I said that's verifiable. And the idea is if I'm running a content node, it's useful to developers because rather than having a single point of failure, like each of these content nodes essentially becomes an API that's serving up the information that that publisher published. And if I use their content node, I know I can trust the information that they're serving me has not been tampered with through some verification process tied to that original blockchain that the uh, publisher published on. But the content node is incentivized to run their node because they can monetize my calls to their API. So the benefit of this is the publisher can put something out, know that it's going to be served up in a way that's truthful and not tampered with. The content node basically can serve up this information and get... uh, compensated for providing an API. And as a developer, I have this API that I can connect to for each content node. And, you know, the more nodes there are, the more I can a, ver- verify that what they're sending me has not been tampered with. But also, uh, if like, let's say one node goes down, I can just use a different node. And essentially, like, I have a backup API. So uh, they go into more detail about the exact implementation on their uh, blog post. We can put that in the show notes. I just want to add a disclaimer that I haven't studied their specific implementation, so I'm not necessarily recommending Menlo Core specifically, but I just found the proof of reputation and the content node concept interesting because uh, one thing that we run into uh, when we're doing on-chain analysis and uh, looking at sources is that you can have certain sources that are a single source of truth that can... Like if there's an issue, it's market moving. The most notable example being uh, Coin Market Cap. Like I, th- I would suspect that there's a lot of things that are connected to Coin Market Cap that are trading algorithmically, and if there's major issues in that CMC data, it's it's going to cause problems. Yeah, that did happen even recently. I think it ended up cra- uh, there was some exchange data that was messed up, and it you know yeah affected all the algorithmic traders. So like uh, in in my mind, a, a theoretical like blue sky scenario of all this would be that the publisher is really just the actual original, like let's say the Bitcoin node. And then I can run a content node that provides like information about transactions, information about, you know, essentially I build an API on top of a Bitcoin full node that's easy for developers to interact with. Uh, you can run one, someone else can run one. 
And so now we have this scenario where we can all verify, like we have an API that's somewhat uh, decentralized and verifiably truthful on what's happening with Bitcoin without having to run a full node or without having to even develop like our own analyses and like aggregations on Bitcoin data. Because I can even, in theory, publish my, like how I do my aggregations and that's verifiable against the node using the same proof of reputation system. Yep. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M like Monero at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.